Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. <laughs> All right, we've got a reading. It's from Luke chapter 9. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we stand as a way of recognizing what is particularly appropriate today, the Word of God through the person of Jesus speaking to us. Let's listen. with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent. And those days told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly, a spirit seized him, and all at once, he shrieks. It throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him, and it will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thanks, Keith. You may be seated. All right, well, I'm going to steal this stand here. Hey, Keith highlighted um, volunteer opportunities and mentioned parish kids. So before we dive in, I do want to just say uh, how much it would be awesome if we find one to two more volunteers in parish kids. Now that we've opened up childcare in the 9 a.m., that has stretched that team, and uh, we, we have it working, and it's working well. But uh, there are a few weeks where Sarah, our family pastor, is actually pulling double duty and serving in the nursery during the 9 a.m. and then serving in uh, elementary during the 10.30 and then misses the service entirely. This is one of those mornings. So as you pick up your kids this morning, would you just say a thank you to Sarah for, for the work she's doing to help us kind of navigate through this transition to providing childcare in both services? And if you're interested in getting more involved in that, let us know. And we're grateful to all of you who, who are involved in that. All right, so our text today is the Transfiguration. And uh, it's Transfiguration Sunday, actually a few weeks ago, but we missed it. We, we were busy doing other things, so we figured, let's come back to it. Um, and uh, this is a story that comes up in the lectionary every year. It's a core, pivotal story 
uh, in, in the gospel text, but it's also uh, a bizarre and befuddling story. It is a layered and, and a loaded story. Um, this is uh, a text that every year we kind of look at it through a slightly different lens. And you can do that because there are so many different lenses that you can see in this story. I mean, it is, like seriously, if you study this text, it is just loaded with image after image and hint after hint, and, and there's lots of fascinating stuff going on here. And at the same time, uh, it is a text that is unsettling. Um, there's a lot in what, what Keith just read that's, that's a bit unsettling not only the transfiguration itself, but then what happens in the scene afterwards. And so um, we do well to follow what Jesus says after the transfiguration. He says, like, don't even talk about this for a while. <laughs> you know, and here I am, like, to talk about it for a while. But, but with that said, like, I think there's something to be said about just meditating on this. This is a passage that draws us in, not via its familiarity, but via its abnormality. Um, kind of like the burning bush that Moses stumbles upon. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. Kind of like Elijah's water-drenched altar that is being consumed by fire, even though it's soaking wet, right? There are, there are uh, confounding things in this text. And so today, we're going to look at four layers of this text, and the goal is to derive some meaning from it, but we're also going to enter into its mystery and uh, not try to master this text, but, but see what it may have to say to us. So let's jump in. We've got four layers we're going to look at, and the first layer is this, the surprising glory on the mountaintop. And it says this, that while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, his clothes became dazzling white, and suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, are talking with Jesus. They appeared in glory. They were speaking of his departure, which here's a, a loaded part of the text. The word departure there in Greek is exodus. So I'll just kind of plant that and see whatever that does for you. Uh, and Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. There is an ancient story about Moses, who is the great lawgiver, and he's frustrated He's feeling the weight of his calling. There are stiff-necked people and stubborn pharaohs in his life, and he has it out with God, and he says, are you going to go with me, God? Like, I don't want to go unless you're going to go with me. Can you take this calling away from me? And he says, I need to see your glory, and God draws him up to the mountaintop. He says, I'm going to cause all of my glory to pass in front of you. You'll see my backside. And we would expect the mountaintop glory of God to be most clear in God's might. But instead, it shows up in that text in God's mercy. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, God says. There's an ancient story about Elijah, who is the great prophet the figurehead of the prophets in the Old Testament. And we looked at this story earlier, and Elijah's depressed, and he's feeling the weight of his calling. And he says, I've tried, right? But I'm out here all by myself, and they're trying to kill all the prophets. They're trying to kill me too. And he has it out with God, and he says, can you take this calling away from me? I need to hear your voice. And God says, go up to the mountain. And so he goes up to the mountain and he hears the wind, 
that shatters the rock, but God's not in it. He hears the earthquake that splits the, the mountain, but God's not in it. He sees the fire. It's lighting up the hilltop trees, but God is not in the fire. We would expect the mountaintop glory of God to be most clear in these awesome acts of power, but the surprising revelation is God's in the sheer silence. And then there's this story about Jesus, and he's the new lawgiver. He's the new prophet. He's the new Moses. He's the new Elijah. And this is the turning point story in the Gospels. In fact, in Mark, which is the first gospel likely written chronologically, Mark is actually divided into two parts, and at the center, the continental divide of the book of Mark is the transfiguration. And everything that follows has to do with Jesus' death. And so it's as if this is the center point where everything shifts toward the cross. And Jesus knows that that's what's going on here. He stays up on this mountain in the glory of God, but he knows that if he goes down this mountain, a cross awaits him. And pretty soon he'll feel overwhelmed with the weight of his calling. He has it out with God. He says, my God, my God, will you forsake your beloved one? Like, can this cup pass from me? And God meets him on the mountain. And, and God is present this time in this story in all the ways he wasn't present in the Elijah story, right? He's, he's in the loud, booming voice. He's in the, the, the shining epiphany light. He's in the earthquake. And, and the disciples fall down. They're overwhelmed by the scene. They're trying to figure out what to make of it. And Peter sees it. He hears it. He wants to linger here for a while, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't understand what he's encountering. Because to stay on the mountain is to try to dodge the death that must come. And Peter says, let's camp out here. Let's stay here. But Jesus knows what he came here to do. He's either going to camp out on the mountain or he's going to go down to Jerusalem where a Palm Sunday parade will await him. And we'll enter into that story in a few weeks. We would expect the mountaintop glory of God to be the spectacular encounter of worship and prayer. But instead, the surprising revelation is that the glory of God at its most clear shows up when we leave the limelight and obediently embrace the pain of sacrificial love. We lay ourselves down for others, and we wait to rise up again. Layer two, the word of God. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one of the things they had seen. Uh, before it was called the Old Testament, it was called the Law and the Prophets. That's why Jesus says all the Law and the Prophets can be summarized in this one command. And who was the foremost lawgiver? Moses. Who was the foremost prophet? Elijah, right? And so those two guys show up on this scene. And this is the end of the Old Testament in actuality. Because what's happening here is that the Old Testament is reaching its ultimate fulfillment. Everything that Moses came to accomplish, the mantle that Elijah carried, is now being handed over to its fulfiller, the person of Jesus, who gives a new law, who is the ultimate prophet or mouthpiece of all that God has to say. The goal of the law was to create a distinct worshiping community. The goal of the prophets was to create a just society. And what we find is only in Jesus can these things happen. 
And so Moses and Elijah show up on this scene not to keep company with Jesus as an equal, but instead to pass the project on to the only one who can fulfill it. And the disciples misunderstand this. They are good Jews, and the sight of Moses, the sight of Elijah, in their minds, that's going to be the thing that elevates Jesus into the company of Moses and Elijah, not the thing that elevates Moses and Elijah into the company of Jesus, right? So they're confused as to what's going on here. Peter wants to build his three equal statues, and, and of course, Peter gets a bad rep for this, but like Peter is, is so faithful. Peter is a hero of the disciples. He does exactly what maybe us at our best might have done. He wants to build one statue or one tent for the law and one for the prophets and one to his rabbi Jesus. And it's not unlike what we do with the Bible today, what we do with scripture today. But then the cloud comes and a voice, and it says, this is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. It's almost the same words that were spoken over Jesus at his baptism, except this time others hear it, right? At his baptism, Jesus hears it. It's the affirmation inside of him of his belovedness, and he's driven into the wilderness, which we talked about. But now everybody hears it that's in this scene. And when the dust settles, what we find is that the Old Testament figureheads are gone, and none but Jesus remains. There is no one else for me, none but Jesus. Jesus, it turns out, is the ultimate living word of all that God has to say. All right, layer three. Chaos and convulsion. And so when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. And suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions, and he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. I want to invite us for a moment to just imagine being that, that parent, that father. Like, we get so used to reading these stories. Like, I cannot imagine the helplessness and the chaos and the pain of seeing your child suffering in that way. It's his only child, right? Jesus is the, the, the son of the father, and here's the son of this father, and he's suffering, and even the disciples cannot find a way to bring healing. And so we just established that Jesus is the ultimate living word of God. What does the word of God do throughout all of the Bible? In the beginning, the earth was formless, chaotic. There are turbulent waters, and God speaks, what? A word. And he says, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And over baptismal waters, God speaks a word. He says, you are my beloved child. In the boat, the waves are crashing, the storm is raging, the disciples are scared, there's troubled waters. God speaks a word, peace be still, and the storm stops. In a room locked out of fear, the disciples are huddled together. They don't know what to make of their new reality. God speaks a word, peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And so what we find throughout the entire Bible is that the word speaks over chaos and order is formed. The word speaks over darkness, and light comes. The word speaks over wilderness, and belovedness is given. The word speaks over storms, and peace comes. The spirit comes. And this is why we pray. This is why we show up to the silence. 
And after Jesus meets with God, he then meets this father whose child is having seizures. And these two stories go together. There's a reason the lectionary gives us these two stories together. Because we can't just have the mountaintop experiences without forgetting about the suffering world below. And so we're drawn to the child who is having these seizures, and here there is chaos, and here there is fear, and here there is darkness, and the disciples don't know what to do. And I find some comfort in that because I don't know what to do, right? Like this whole world is having seizures. This whole, there's chaos all around us. I don't know what, I, like I, I'm, I'm praying, I'm doing all I know to do. And sometimes it feels woefully insufficient but out of the chaos with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? An outstretched arm. God speaks his word, Jesus. He sent forth his word and it heals them. In the 16th century, Pope Clement uh, the Seventh. in case you're curious about your Pope Clements, want to make sure we get the number right there. Uh, he commissioned the artist Raphael to make a painting of the Transfiguration. Now, this is not typically the kind of painting we show here because there's a lot of white people in this painting. It feels, uh, it's just got a certain style to it. But, but I think it's fascinating, and I know it's maybe hard to see up here on this screen, uh, but, but what's going on here is this is a painting of the Transfiguration. It's going to become the altarpiece of this great French cathedral. It's the final painting Raphael worked on in his life. He worked on it until his death, and it's been called his greatest masterpiece. And what's going on here, if we look at the top, obviously we've got the Transfiguration. We've got Moses and Elijah next to Jesus. We've got the disciples knocked out on the ground below. But Raphael does something fascinating here. He takes the whole story. He takes the scene of the disciples and the, the child, you can see the child there having seizures in the bottom right-hand corner. And the disciples are trying to cast this, this, this demon out, and there's chaos in the scene below. And I think it's fascinating that when asked to paint about the transfiguration, Raphael paints half of the piece about the child having seizures. And if we look in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil, there are a few fingers pointing up to what is happening on the mountain above. And I wonder if that could be our picture for this morning. Look up there. That's the word. Listen to him. And so that brings us to layer four, our final layer. Listen to him. Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory. And of course, the voice speaks, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. It's fascinating to me that whenever we get stories about Jesus going to pray and he takes the disciples along, they cannot stay awake to save their lives. You know? <laughs> Why are they always so sleepy? Me too, right? Like when I go to pray, me too. <laughs> and, and the disciples, they always want to set up other voices as equals to Jesus. Me too. Me too. And how about you? Uh, let's look internal for a second. What are the voices that you have permitted to camp out and to take up residence alongside Jesus? Uh, even good ones. Even good ones. Right? Moses and Elijah are good voices. We do well to have them in our lives, in our, in our ears, and even they are not meant to take up equal standing alongside the living word of God that is Jesus. And so are there good 
authoritative voices in your life that are taking up too much space and crowding out the voice of Jesus. Voices of loved ones. Voices of influential people. Voices of tradition. Voices of practicality. Voices of culture. What about inside of you? Are there voices bringing chaos, bringing the turmoil, the inner critic, self-doubt, core lies that you have believed about yourself? And what about really practically? Are there voices of social media? Are there voices of cable news? Are there voices of talk radio? Are there voices of streaming music that are causing you to fall asleep to the glory? Right? Good things, nothing wrong with these things, but have we elevated them too much to where we are not staying awake? It is because they stayed awake, just barely, just barely. I mean, they slumbered, they were sleepy, but they stayed awake enough to get it. And so, this Lent, here's what I want to leave us with today. What are the good things in your life that are gifts to be received but need to come down a notch or two? for them to take their rightful place below Jesus. So that you might listen to the living word, which often comes to us through the sound of sheer silence, so that we may attend to God's healing word, his peaceful presence, his chaos-stilling spirit. I want to encourage us to take a little space this week to hear what God has to say through the living word of Jesus. David's going to come up here, and, uh, and he's going to lead us into a time of silent prayer We'll start with a song, and then he's just going to go into an extended time of silence. And um, it may feel a little long. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be super long, but, but sometimes silence just feels a lot longer than it is because we're not accustomed to it. That in and of itself is instructive to us. And so let's use this as a moment to meet God.
sad.